0: You're listening to a Milky Podcast. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land of which we operate, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And with respect to where our collaborators, guests and listeners are, we extend our acknowledgement to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders, past and present. Hello, my name is Patrick Hayes and this is Producers in Conversation. This podcast is all about a space for producers to discuss, share triumphs, experiences and difficulties as we explore the ever elusive question, what is a producer anyway? I've been in this industry for about 10 years now and I'm still not sure I know the answer. Today I am joined by executive producer and co-CEO of back-to-back theatre, Tim Stitz, as we discuss international touring, the benefits of diverse funding streams, and also Tim's journey through the emerging scene of Melbourne. Tim, would you like to introduce yourself to our guests?
1: Hello everyone, my name's Tim Stitz. My pronouns are he, him, and I'm a cis-white person, uh, and I... Oh gosh, let's go back to the very start. I was born on Darug land, um, up in what is now sort of the northern suburbs of Sydney. Um, I've lived most of my life on Wurundjeri country down in Nam Melbourne. And I started off my professional career in the arts, coming out of doing a huge amount of student theatre at Melbourne University. I didn't study theatre, I did um, a commerce degree and an arts degree, and, you know, arts, humanities and languages, really, as opposed to of arts. and Then I did heaps and heaps of performing at university, probably more than my actual study, but that was, you know, an apprenticeship of sorts. And I didn't, as an actor, go to drama school necessarily, but I did sort of an apprenticeship at La Mama, like a lot of people do. And um, I'm closing the door here, actually. I'm sorry. Zurich, because my current job is that I'm the executive producer at Back to Back and uh, Back to Back Theatre. I'll I'll talk about them more in detail if you'd like later. Yeah. So I'm on the road at the moment and I love having the window open when you're in a hotel or or somewhere staying on the other side of the world or anywhere really, because you just get natural air and and you hear the the bells ringing or the construction and it just is reality. So coming back to, yeah, I did study at Melbourne Uni. I did this apprenticeship at La Mama, did a ton of shows, was making my own work, was acting in other people's shows, learnt my craft that way, I guess, in terms of Performing, dramaturgy, making, but also I was doing probably a huge amount, like all independent artists, a huge amount of self producing. And I got to the point where I was loving creating my own work in the theatre and I created a piece called Lloyd Beckman Beekeeper and that toured a bit in Australia and was on the syllabus and got published and that kind of thing. But I was finding it pretty soul destroying and tough. It's tough being an actor and you have to. You're constantly in that process of getting jobs or rejection uh, of working between mediums in terms of film and television and theatre, loving and finding theatre extremely rewarding, or at least I did. And I found some film and television extremely rewarding, but then a lot of it, you know, you do your TV commercial or whatever, and whilst the money is extraordinary and fantastic, that was effectively subsidising all of my independent theatre work, which was you know, greatly loss-making, occasionally you get, like, a little honorary uh, co-op split, which is yeah. delightful.
0: <laughs> Gosh, honestly, like, yeah, acting seems like one of the most... Yeah, I I was never really an actor, but I did do, like, a... I, I applied for, like, you know, the Niders, the Whoppers when I was kind of graduating yeah. and because I was, you know, I was in the high school musical and had that dream of moving forward and I had the most soul-crushing like crushing experience of an audition just once, and I went, I don't know if I could actually do this. I think I had to do two songs just to get into Mm. the course, and I got halfway through my first song, and they said, you are killing that song for me. Please move on to the next one. Oh, my gosh. And obviously, I did terribly after (laughs) doing that in the first but you know nine years ago i can laugh about that but yes i have Mm -hmm. immediate respect for artists who have to like especially actors in that kind of auditioning spectrum because obviously we work in like very artistic fluid kind of spaces where artists and actors are sometimes very different kind of roles where there's like the fulfilling the actor audition versus Mm. artists who kind of collaboratively collaboratively make that work and kind of go from Mm. there but um Mm. Mm. Yeah, you've had quite a really big journey. Because when we met, you were still working at um, Chambermaid, from memory. Yeah, that's
1: right. And that's alongside my performing and theatre making, I was also part of Melbourne Playback Theatre Company for a period of time, which was a great professional development and life experience in terms of fantastic people but also just constantly the way that works is you we did rehearsals every week and we did gigs in schools in corporate environments and community settings all around improvisational kind of playbacks that kind of form uh, forum theater Mm -hmm. and it it just was excellent training so I was doing that and performing alongside doing some part-time work at a university and in research projects, like arts research projects in theatre and and education, and I suppose I was I was doing a lot of admin and project management, and I, I had a could see that I had some skills, and I was being told, "Oh, you're really good at this. Maybe you should think about you know would other would you want to do this full time?" And I think as the acting and whatnot was feeling a little bit harder, I was like, "Yeah, maybe for me the most important thing about being in the arts is feeling." like you're part of contributing to the creation of something new that can have that amazing intrinsic experience that I've experienced in the arts and seeing work and experiencing work so much. It doesn't always happen, but we quest after it constantly. And I guess I wanted to be part of that. I also just love working with people and collaboration and I draw energy from that. And that's what led me to being a producer. I saw the role at Chambermaid come up, the executive producer role. And Chambermaid's a really long standing small company based in Melbourne, in North Melbourne. And I went for the role and I got it and then had a you know baptism of fire, learning how to, to be a producer in that setting in a small company where funding's very, very tight, um, going after project money, going after philanthropic, trying to get opportunities. I had the great fortune of working with David Young, who was the artistic director at that time and really was taking the company back from the edge, really. It was almost, it almost um, was wound up and finished it. we lost some funding. And, yeah. But it was a great experience, and I just learned a, a ton from that experience. Yeah, yeah. And that's what set me on the path to where I currently am. Look, I think, and, you know, we'll probably talk about
0: it a little bit later. You know, I think most producers I know, um, I think the trial by fire is... Uh, the way that we end up in the role, just because we don't, as, a, as we're discovering in these conversations, Laura and I, mm-hmm. there's no simple 10 steps to making a show or a project or anything like that. And even if there was, every project is different, every situation's different. You know, we've had multiple ways of fluctuating and r- rug being ripped out from under us and all those kind of elements. But mm. looking looking at it then, I guess like the first question I'd like to ask is with becoming a producer, like what is your definition of the role of producer?
1: In a very simple way, I think producers help make things happen. And it might sound glib, but that's what I come down to pretty much in every day of my job and my own practice as a producer is how can I enable artists in particular, but everyone working alongside that, every kind of production collaborator, artistic collaborator, technician, front of house, hospitality bar person, how do we make this happen together and be a really amazing experience for someone who's coming to watch our show or our experience or our exhibition, whatever it is, so that people can be primed to receive this expression from either a singular artist or a series of artists that have worked together on a project.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really, like, encapsulating concept, and I think that's kind of in the last few episodes that we've done and kind of idea of, yeah, we're the ones that kind of we're meant to adjust and react to these unpredictable little things that happen. But that's kind of why our role is a bit more fluid in that sense. It's because sometimes... You know, I, I I don't wake up and go, I need to know about liquor licensing in venues because that's not something I needed to know until suddenly I'm a, I have an event that I need to know exactly all the different legal requirements of liquor licensing. The one that I'm struggling with at the moment is US visas and trying to understand all of that. And I literally wasted a bit, not wasted. Learnt, and I'm doing this in air quotes because I'm clearly annoyed and frustrated with it, but like did four or five hours of research into the multitude of contract of the legalities of visas for America. And it is a doozy. I will never complain about the Australia visa process again for artists um, ever again.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I haven't had direct experience in the US visa. I've only been supporting and watching members of our team do it. And it's, yeah, it's grueling. It
0: is a big, a big time. Now, you kind of gave us a journey of your like going in through like your acting, moving on through and kind of like La Mama, which for any of our listeners who are not from Melbourne, that's a very like sector staple where a lot of arts workers have kind of been fostered, grown, mentored. There was an awful fire a few Mm -hmm. years ago. Weirdly, like just after I arrived in Melbourne, because I remember being... Not shocked as it because like I've got other venues that I connect with it, but I, everyone was just like very much impacted by La Mama burning down, and I was just like, I've arrived in two weeks. I'm not really sure what La Mama is, but mm. definitely one of those. Every every city has a La Mama, like has a funneling, nurturing growth point where everyone I think has like a very special, like a, for me it was Metro Arts in Brisbane. That was kind yep. of the one that existed in that mm. space mm-hmm. for anyone else. I'm sure there's others, but yeah. And then no,
1: I, getting... I, would, I would say that as well. It's like, what, the, yeah, did you, did you, was it Metro or did you, um, was there a student theatre group that you, that you were part of? I mean,
0: well, like technically for me, it school. was the Festival of Australian Student Theatre, which I was the one of my first ever festivals I ran, mm. which was that, and then Vina Carver, which was the QUT student theatre company. But yeah. yeah, Metro Arts was definitely the, that's what we were aiming for, was Metro. And then you'd do a thing at Metro mm. and then, go around, but the Brisbane ecosystem has a lot less venues and festivals happening in in Melbourne, which seems to have an event every other week um, (laughs) when we can have events, which is great. But with that kind of trajectory, so like, why why did you feel like you became a producer in that sense?
1: I think it's that thing of trying to understand how I could contribute, how I could be part of... The world be part of this community that we're in and what you were just saying before is i can just reflecting in that moment i can think of the communities and the groups that i've been involved with and you know through immense privilege like i you know was given drama classes and then was able to go to a drama um extracurricular thing at um, whilst i was at school and i did school drama and then you know getting into university that's still a huge privilege in the, in our country but I was able to do student theatre and I was able to um, find places like St Martin's, which sort of whilst at uni and then transitioning into the sector was extremely helpful in terms of being an emerging artist and a young person who is, you know, grappling with identity, sexuality, a number of sort of things, going, where do I fit? Who, where are my people? And along the way, you find those communities. And La Mama then became that, that place, Union House Theatre whilst I was at Melbourne Uni. And then you find, you know, you go into professional settings like chambermaid and that for a period of time, I was there for a bit over seven years, was a hugely important professional learning experience. But it was also just the people in that time, I count as some of the closest and best people I've ever had the opportunity and great privilege of Of getting to know and then of course you you start interacting with people such as yourself in in other contexts like whether it's a festival or presenters or you meet artists you you have your mind blown by what's possible you you then go into other parts of Australia sector you go into other parts of international communities and I through Chamber Matter had a great experience of beginning to understand like the AETM network which is an international contemporary performance or theatre network which is not quite a market but it's I got Funded a couple of times to go um, with Chambermaid, just to get my bearings and, and begin to meet people, particularly in that Chambermaid space, which is around music and sound and performance. But I just, I just think, for me, producing is in is in that sort of existential space or interst. Is that the word? It's like the it's like that interstitial. I think i put the wrong the word wrong. It is the between. It, it, it's you're not, it well, doesn't have as always the, the clearer cut job, like you're an actor, you're on stage, you're the yeah. director, you're the production manager, you're the stage manager. It it requires you to catch a lot of the things that fall between those. those pulling,
0: pulling on my drama degree, which I probably have used about three times in my entire career, <laughs> in the post-dramatic sense, we'd be calling that liminal space,
1: that liminal, liminal yeah. the
0: in-between, the transitional, um, yeah. but not quite transitioned kind of space, yeah. which I think is a, it is like a very place where I feel like I'm in, in a producer where, especially for independent producers, you're often almost a whole creative team in one person as well. Kind of, you know, marketer, sometimes, you know, director, dramaturg, outside eye, producer, uh, stage manager, sometimes if you're just the, you know, artist plus one person. And yeah, it's a really interesting space to be with With that yeah, in mind
1: interstitial space its that and it what lies between blood vessels and cells and provides the fluid and structural environment surrounding those cells.
0: Oh, um, how could we both forget that word? I mean, we must use it every day. <laughs> I'm looking forward to future Patrick, looking at the captions for that and trying to figure out how to spell that specific word. Um, so, <laughs> good luck, no, I future know. Patrick. Um, yeah, I, I, but I think that is like a real, in some of the other conversations I've also talked about For me, sometimes producer exists that in between um, also, I guess, like kind of the more extremes, like in between artistic and logistic, like kind of in that Mm. space of having to talk to the artist, but then also having to have that realistic, pragmatic look of what is happening and kind of interpreting what the artist says to then tell the tech teams at certain venues or festivals exactly Mm. what we need to have set up and all of those Mm. points. So, yeah, I think that's Mm. a really good Encapsulation of that feeling sometimes of being the in-between mm. person, mm. Mm. or inter inter. I can't even remember exactly how to say the word. It's like interstitial, interstitial, inter interstitial. With that in mind, in that interstitial space, what was the moment where you felt like a producer? Was there like a penny drop moment? Was there a day that you were like, "Yes, I now know exactly what I'm doing." Thank you, everyone.
1: I don't know if it, I don't feel like I've ever had a day where I feel like I know exactly what I'm doing. Maybe at the very, when I, the day I retire, I might go, great, I'm retiring today. I know what that is. But, and you know, will we ever retire? Will I ever retire? It's a big existential question. But I think there yes. was a moment, actually, and this is when I'd started working at Dave, with David Young, and it was on this project called the Minotaur Trilogy. Very experimental, controversial work in three parts. And it was programmed as part of the Melbourne Festival in, I think, 2012 and at the Melbourne Recital Centre. And I'd been on tour with part one when I'd not long started with the company. But I, it was actually David turning to me saying, I've never had this. I've never had someone step in. And effectively, I was the delivery producer. He'd done a lot of the creative producing and, and teeing up the presenters, although I think I, I was part of the conversation with the festival. But he had been the creative producer and the creator of the work with the late Margaret Cameron and a number of amazing collaborators on that piece. But he said, you have given me the opportunity in me being a delivery producer of me just focusing on the work. So I don't need to have this split brain, which we always have to some extent. You know, even an artist is is going, I'm making the work. Oh, but who needs to see it? Is there someone in my network, a mentor? a family member, a fellow artist who I want to see it. The producer's role is doing that, you know, even bigger for all the other subsets and groups. Like who is the festivals? Who are the stakeholders there? Who are the audience coming to see it? Who are our donors? Who are, you know, I I don't think David's mind ever really switched off from that. But he, I felt, we both felt it. I felt like, oh, okay, I see where I can step in here and support you and this team. And it was you know, a huge learning experience and very intense, but it was hugely rewarding to go through that process. And I, I did; I felt like a producer in that moment.
0: That's awesome. Well, like as as we kind of mentioned, we've known each other for about five years now. But you mm. met me as um, coordinator at APAM, which yeah. was like one of the most. I think I was starting to feel in that kind of producing spectrum but it was the most intimidating Mm. space to kind of come into with as you're talking like stakeholder management like that was a pure arts market conference of arts organizers and producers which I think producing Mm. for producers is the most terrifying thing I've ever done in my life but also that's why you have the team that kind of could break up where my artistic director version of that was like Zohar who is amazing and Shout out to Zohar if you're listening. And then I was there kind of just dealing with all the, like, I guess customer service level producing of, like, the everyday little fires that I was trying to put out. But it's a, it's a useful skill. And, yeah, it's a really mm. – sometimes you need mm. that, that separation of – especially with sta- some of the high, high stakeholders, which sometimes working in that kind of high art form where you do exist. There are, there mm. are lots of funders and very – um mm. Precious is probably the wrong word, but very high stakes, stakeholders, Mm. where they have a lot invested in the project and very strong opinions.
1: But this this is the thing about producing, and maybe it is also a a hallmark of working in a small to medium company or an independent uh, arts environment, is that you have the full spectrum of meeting with dignitaries, politicians. And then uh, only minutes or hours later, you are doing something extremely um, menial, like breaking boxes up or cleaning glasses, you know, in terms of hospitality, we've got an event, let's just all hands on deck. Yeah, Uh, we had a joke at Chambermaid, it's like, oh, what's the CEO doing today? And like there's pictures of, you know, me trying to compact all the boxes into the recycling bin. And then, you know, there's like, oh, and here Tim meets the minister and talks about, what the company is doing and advocating yep. for the work of our amazing artists. So that, to me, is 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 the is the the beautiful spectrum of producing. And I think it it's a like a well, every job is is a professional problem solver. But I think a lot of what happens when you're and you, just what you said about being a coordinator at APAM is you can set up all the delivery and and the schedule and and it, it's like a train. We all know we're we're moving towards an event or we're moving towards an opening night but then it's just being right what more i can't do much more apart from let this just keep rolling and be prepared to catch and foresee problems as they come up and do it with grace and humility and say, make sure everyone is looked after in that process
0: in in the weirdest possible way i've always found those moments the most enjoyable part of my job, especially working within mm. a lot of festival delivery. Um, mm. I used to call it like it was the down of the roller coaster. Like it was the it was the drop, which is like yeah. terrifying, exciting, everything. But it also gave you that agency. Sometimes when you're planning something or organizing, you get really bogged down with like conversations or should I should I do this? Should I not? And I think when you're in delivery mode, you start getting more into instinctual brain where it's suddenly going, mm. yes, no. That one mm. move forward, fix the problem. Is that fix is that on fire? No, it's not. Great. Moving on. Mm. Like it was just mm. it's a real Yeah, it's a it's, unless you've really done it, it's I guess it's really hard for me to put into words, but it's that moving out of the out of your mind almost into the body of a producer at that point and you're just like yeah. acting yeah. on impulse. <laughs> but it is 100%. my favorite time, I think. Mm. What what are the core skills that you think a producer needs with that kind of moment? Or do you even Have any that you know of?
1: (laughs) I have some skills. There's a lot of skills I lack, but you know, I'm going to focus on the positive, Patrick. Yes, do. Um, I think, as a producer, you need foresight. I think you need mouse and lateral thinking, flexibility. I think you also need to put yourself in other people's shoes in, in some moments to go, which, you know, that's the great fortune I had of being an actor and a creative or theatre maker is that i come from that and I can, I can understand how deeply nerve-wracking it is to put yourself out with a new work as a writer, as a creator, and then to perform that work, whether it's not, if it's not your work, then you're still holding space for that, the, the success of that work and there's a lot at stake. I'm trying my very best to understand when people come from more of a technical production point of view, what's at stake for them as well. Um, Mm -hmm. Because that's not necessarily my lived experience. But it is, we can't do what we do without um, amazing production collaborators and technical collaborators. I think the other thing that I would say the key skills are for being a producer it is, yeah, that big picture alongside the attention to detail. And you need both. And there's a whole lot of euphemisms around hold on tightly, let go lightly kind of you, you need to find the right moment. It's like, when do you go, okay, I need to let that go. That's not going to, the detail, it's not how I'd like it, but it's out there in the world. We just need to let it run and roll and put it on the shit scale and go, right, is it critical for me to blow up and get really upset mm-hmm. about this? Or is it go, you know, and there are some moments where it's like, actually, this is really critical because, and I, I have been involved in my career as a producer quite a lot in fundraising, and I'd probably choose to be a producer more who fundraisers than a professional fundraiser because I love the connection to art and, and making the work happen. And I love, I can't, yeah, I mean, not that fundraisers don't love artists, they do. They're all doing it for the reason that they want to raise money to enable work too. But um, yeah, I think I also want to be at the face of, of the creation of, of, of the piece and then you know i like raising money so i can help spend the money and see how it's being spent where a lot of fundraisers he, he go here you go do it
0: yes Yeah. yeah you hand it but, over and then <laughs> yes
1: i think it's there, there's a lot of that, that come back to my point was the the detail of well there are people here who have their own desires feelings and we do need to be careful about what we say and do and go with our gut and our instinct around, oh, okay, I don't want to be impersonal here, but writing that message is a bit impersonal. I think a phone call needs to happen. Let's pick up the phone instead of just, oh, it's just easier to email. Like, it is easier to email, but I would say pick up the phone, leave a message and say, I'm going to send you an email about it so it, immediately it's more personalised. And yeah, I, I just I think you get lots more traction and you build much greater trust doing working in that way.
0: Yeah, I think sometimes when I talk to artists and we talk about producers, there's this kind of idea that producers are the business brain of arts world, which I understand that. And I think we often do sit in that space, uh, mm-hmm. maybe when because we've worked in like other organisations where there's often even a more business brain orientated person, like a general manager or those kind of sense. But I think it is one of those skills because we are the business People. We do make the product happen. We're there to make sure the product at, at the end of the day happens and exists. But it's also, I think, the really good producers are the ones that kind of remember that our product are people. Like, there's a, it's something that can be really easily forgotten in the shuffle, in the contracts, and all of the nitty gritty. You know, suddenly people just don't forget that artists are people too or technical staff are people too or all of those points like and you just have to sometimes take that moment and go oh i can't have everyone working 12 hours to get this project up without a break because that's not possible and people are people and they need to exist Um, which sometimes can be a bit more i think harder for not hard to remember but we don't necessarily have the same structures in place as other organizations that have more strong union input, I guess, or like those kind of elements where there's like a very strong framework that protects everyone involved. But yeah, I think that's right. Like, you know, it is, it's the kind of, especially that's something that I've always tried to uh, remember, especially as like when I was working in festivals and points. It's very a very high stress time for artists, uh, mm. especially in some of the more emerging festivals I've worked in, like Fringe or Midsummer, mm. where sometimes it's the first show or first things. And yeah, without trying to sound naff, it is that empathy I think of being a producer, where you just have to go, mm. look, this might not be the most biggest hill to die on for me, but I understand why this person is really. Intense about this one point yeah. and just remember that, even though you might have to still tell them no, how are you going to do that in a, in a way that yeah. respects their passion for that point?
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah, and I think this is also the I, I certainly you're touching on, you know, the experience of, of the pandemic thus far and the fragility that and exhaustion that people are still contending with on a daily basis. And since starting with back to back, I'm You know, executive producer of all that we do, but also I'm the co-CEO of the organisation. So ultimately, Bruce and I have responsibility for the welfare of. At the moment, it's around 25, 26 people who are on our core staff, and then it expands into tracks on projects um, with contractors. And that has been the most important thing throughout this all, and it always is. Like you're absolutely right. We we are a knowledge-based, people-based, industry and particularly in the performing arts, where we have to ensure that people are looked after and there is empathy, even though you have to say you can't do it that way, this is the limit of the budget, this is how much you're getting paid, it's either, it's the end of the, the road, we're wrapping up your contract. Yeah. You know, whatever the tough decisions are and conversations to have, I think you need to do it in a sensitive, empathetic way.
0: Yeah. Like, as you said, like, even in that fundraising environment, sometimes you don't get the grants, which is like heartbreaking for the producer that went for the grant, but then it's often the producer that then has to tell the rest of the creative team and figure out how to not send the text. It's like, lol, this project's over, but like how do we actually sit down and go, okay, so we didn't get this opportunity. Do we try to do other opportunities? How are we feeling? Because also I've had times where I've been in teams where there's been one person really pushing stuff forward which has been the producer or like a co-producer with me. And, you know, sometimes the artist's heart has been knocked out. They really were set on that opportunity and it didn't happen. And it's like, cool, you know what? Pushing forward to make that project happen next month is actually going to affect the work and the artist negatively. Let's push it, which when I was at Midsummer, that was a constant conversation with like pandemic stuff is just going, you know what? It's okay to say no, which I'm being a much bigger advocate for with artists and producers is just go, the show doesn't always have to go on and it's that real balance of trying to figure out when it does have to go on and when it's okay to just be like, I'm taking, we're not going to do it this year, we'll do it next year or actually this project is time to be put to bed, which like, I mean, as this is kind of something that we are struggling with, (laughs) both of us in this sense, Mm -hmm. what is one thing that you struggle with the most being a producer and how do you manage it?
1: I think I was just thinking about, I did a, a stand-in, and this is how we also worked together in this role, when I was in this role at Arts Centre Melbourne as a creative producer. I was looking after Dan Clark's position as creative producer on uh, contemporary performance and drama mm-hmm. or theatre. And um, I think it's that saying no. But again, I really was like, wanted to, to instead of saying yes, I'm a much more, you know, it's the improvisational um, Theatre practice around, mm-hmm. and the offers and accepting offers and building on them, and, and of course morphing them if it needs to, because you don't want to, you know, stand in the way of a freight train. I I was trying very hard at the time within the structures of a big place like Arts Centre Melbourne of going, okay, it's it's a no, it's not it's not the right work for this context, not now. Come back and at this point. Just being really trying to be as transparent as possible. The pandemic, I think, helped that because I think it forced everybody across all parts of the sector, whether you're a major, a big, large organization, or infrastructure or government based organization to a small organization or a single sole operator to go, this is how it is for me. You need to know this so we can work together in an, in an efficient way. I think the so occasionally, yeah, I, I do struggle with saying no. I'm getting better at it. Yeah. So it's a constant practice. I think the other thing is. The balance of of future planning and plotting versus current day-to-day delivery, and mm-hmm. that's probably more in my current role um, as an executive producer, is is setting the, the the program and looking really preempting what's next year, what's 2024, what's 2025, what's beyond that, and then also dealing with the things that come up day-to-day. Either you know, on tour at the moment, there's things that, that crop up and that I'm just aware of there are things obviously on you know back in Australia on that a different time zone which are happening which I need to be aware of too yeah they're, they're the the trickier things I think as a producer I have also struggled with the hustle and you talked about you know there are some producers that are very commercially driven and they have to be and that's there's big money out there if you're a big commercial producer even if you're a smaller commercial producer and um, you're producing comedy, such as a wonderful producer such as Laura that we know of, yep. you have to also go. This is a business decision. There are business decisions here, and I make business decisions for for back to back because I know that you know we have a significant part of our income is fees from touring or fees from co-commissions, and we have to build that that money. We also have a, a fantastic. Um, investment from government or multiple layers of government great investment from philanthropic community as well and individuals but i have felt at times as a producer that kind of hustle and chase and the competition when you're at an arts market and you go oh who have you had meetings with what are you doing um and the thrill of there is a thrill of a chase that i think some producers love and the thrill of Mm the deal and i've I think I'm much more of a natural diplomat, and um, I don't want to, I don't want to be a walkover. But at the same time, uh, we have to have a negotiation. But I'm I don't I don't like going. Oh, I screwed that person out of an extra, you know, 10, 20 grand, sucking yeah. them kind of thing. I, I'm I'm, and maybe that makes me not as much of a good capitalist. But um, <laughs> I think that's why I'm existing in the subsidized. Uh, arts organisations yes.
0: community. Look, I think we probably share that um, <laughs> that journey. That's one of the things I definitely struggled with uh, the most mm-hmm. was in that kind of space. I'm much more <laughs> of a, um, you know, I'm sure there's some sort of metaphor about the bending the bending river rather than, you know, the tidal wave of force when it comes to producing and mm-hmm. um, setting out multiple options, as you said, like not necessarily treating every no as a no, but going, look, this is several options that we can do to, you know, get to the same end point and this way or this way or this way is more available to us than mm. this more difficult way. But, yeah, I I think there are that certain time, especially... in I found it, especially as an emerging artist, I think I got a lot better. um, Sorry, I'm not really an artist. Emerging producer, I should just say, because I'm one of those weird people who never really had an artistic practice. But it was that, you know, you're working, putting all the work in to make your show happen, but then you go out for like a drink after, but then you are talking, networking, pitching the next show, taking Mm. notes in your phone to then email someone the next day. Like it kind of becomes this thing where you work your work and personal life, I think, in that space, do cross over more intensely. Um, but, and, and I respect the people who can do that. Like I'm like you are. The energy that you have is outstanding. But yeah, I I mm-hmm. definitely struggled to keep up in that space as well with that kind of yeah ho ness of everything. Yeah. Yeah. So, did you want to give some? You mentioned that you might want to give some context to what back-to-back theatre was yeah, at the start sure. of the episode. Did you want to just talk about what back-to-back
1: was? Yeah, great. So, back-to-back um, theatre was is was um, was formed in sort of like 1987, 88. So it's been going for over 30 years, and it's centered around an ensemble of artists, um, actors, and co-authors who are perceived to have intellectual disabilities or a newer or are uh, neurodiverse and. Well before I started with the company, I would have ranked it in, you know, one of the top five, top ten theatre companies in the world. It is an extraordinary body of work. I remember the first show I saw from the company was Small Metal Objects in 2005. And it was also a work that put the company into an international setting after a huge amount of work from the ensemble, from all the artists and, and practitioners involved. And, and the company just built off that. So the company has a you know, a formidable experience and reputation nationally and internationally for touring work, it works of theatre. More recently, we've been exploring the screen world, and this is before the pandemic descended, but it helped us that we'd already done some thinking. We'd made a short film with Matchbox P- Pictures, which is also the pilot of a TV series. We then produced a film adaptation of our most recent theatre work in the pandemic. We adapted it. We got some money from... The department of social services to do that with this really radical internship program for for interns who experience or have a lived experience of disability both on mm-hmm. camera and off camera and the company also has a huge history in the northern suburbs of geelong and that greater geelong region so we're based on water country down there and always have mm-hmm. been of community and engagement with the educational or the schools in the area too so there's a lot of pathways to come in to engage with the company. We have this long-standing group called Theatre of Speed, which, which come together every Wednesday. It's an experimental theatre lab. They do professional skills development, the make work, and that's often a feeder for our ensemble. So the ensemble at the moment is currently five people. Um, it's mm-hmm. usually up to six or seven, and so we'll probably be doing some more succession work in terms of getting some new people to join the ensemble in the future. And um, yeah, the company. I mean, it it exists across those multiple planes of local, international. Um, There's, it's known for its work, but I'd also say it's known to be quite an incredible example in in the Australian disability space in terms of it's an, an Australian disability enterprise. It's we get activity and funding from the NDIS, both as an employer, but also as a person, as a group who run community programs. Yeah, it's an amazing group and a privilege to, to be involved with, I would say. I, I think I was a bit burnt out from working in companies like other small organizations like ChamberMaid. I was, mm-hmm. at the end of it, I was like, I want some experience of a bigger company. I did I worked for a few places in like Hudson, in Melbourne and Creative Partnerships Australia, um, doing some work there. But what drew me back is being closer to the work and and to artists and back-to-back it's not a small company it's 25 people it's, a, it's yeah. in the context of australia it's a medium arts organization it's just come into the national performing arts partnerships framework which is what the majors were so the company is a pretty it's not a small company anymore it was i think that's the mythology for a while so like who, who would have thought this small company from geelong regional mm-hmm. um, that is based around artists with an intellectual disability has made it big on this, you know, it's it's done that through a lot of um building and hard work and tenacity and now, you know, is about to win this extraordinary award over in Oslo in a couple of weeks. It's the International Ibsen Award, which some dub as the well in fact themselves they dub it the Nobel Prize of Theatre cash pies, but yeah so awesome i'm on the coattails of of that greatness i have to say yeah
0: <laughs> look back to back is an amazing company i've encountered with it almost as much as i've crossed paths with you in many different ways i think the show that you're actually touring Right now in Zurich was the show that was being <laughs> pitched at the APAM that I was involved in, which is a
1: correct.
0: Once again, our the, of the rivers of our dreams. our lives are crossing over. Um, mm-hmm. But if you, if anyone hasn't looked them up, I definitely would recommend checking out Back to Back Theatre. We might even have a link on the podcast page to link to that. But um,
1: sure.
0: Yeah, it's an amazing amazing company. I've programmed them myself and worked within creative development spaces, and
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah, they they've really been a trailblazer in a lot of ways for some of those kind of more contextual places and taking on those conversations, which we've talked about in depth before Mm -hmm. of like, not just like the small company, but just like belittling some of that kind of like, or condescension towards that art form and the artists within that space, which is just not Mm -hmm. relevant because back-to-back always, like I think I've, I don't think I've ever seen a back-to-back show that I haven't walked away and just felt amazed at the whole experience, which is, brilliant. I just wanted Mm -hmm. to give that context because I'm sure that we'll talk around back-to-back more in this kind of conversation. But keeping in mind, and I just say this for context, because this year, in the last two years, everything changes month to month. So, I do just say what month we're recording in. So, we're at the start Mm -hmm. of September 2022. Mm -hmm. So, if there's any major... Life-changing incidences that have happened in the next couple of months, and we're not talking about it. That's why we're not talking about it. I literally used to make that joke in the ones that I did in July, and then like massive things happened in August. That I was like, <laughs> monkeypox, all these things. I'm like, well, this is why we're saying it. Even on you're on tour at the moment, but how are you tackling the current climate? It, like, what is it like internationally?
1: The pandemic. It's almost, in some regards, like it's not doesn't really exist anymore in Europe, um, and certainly some countries, like in in the UK. I was in Edinburgh. Very few people are wearing masks. There's very little worry or concern for COVID, even though their numbers are still very very high, and there's big strains on their healthcare system. Um, I noticed when I was catching a train from Brussels uh, down to meet the team in Basel in Switzerland. We went through. Germany and the synergy mm-hmm. in Germany they're still um, wearing masks on public transport so I, I we have a COVID safe plan at back-to-back and I was wearing my mask generally throughout but I felt I definitely feel much more comfortable when there are those kind of PPE and precautions in in place and really for us it's about um, obviously protecting every member of our touring party because we don't want any of them to get sick while they're away but it's also just to ensure the continuity of of doing Keeping the gigs going, and there's so much time and effort and work. And I know we've all had experience of of this in the last two years, or more more than two years now, of of producing work, unproducing, unpicking it. Um, it feels like you're not succeeding. You're not doing anything. You're just constantly being shuffled and living with the great uncertainty of this time. I think back to that. I mean, so touring feels it's great to be doing touring again. Um, it's great to having the the ensemble are just reveling performing, having a conversation with audiences again. It's Mm -hmm. what they miss the most by being locked down. I kept on asking people, where do you want to go? What do you want to be doing? And we're just trying to realise that now. And that's what the company's always been about, is trying to sort of realise the dreams and aspirations of the ensemble, but also platforming them as the key spokespeople for the company and the work. Yeah, sure, there's still so much complexity day-to-day with... the 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 pandemic as a an issue yeah it's it's just we're initiating the covid safe plan we're we're on every day that we're on tour we're still doing surveillance rat testing i think some people will think over here they would go what are you doing that's ridiculous but then we went and met a beautiful group of and i don't think there's any if i've been asked this a couple of times recently oh is there are there many other companies or examples internationally like back to back and there are similar companies, but I suppose we all have our unique imprimatur and, and differences. But We met this gr- great ensemble called Theatre Hora in Zurich and uh, they are part of the Zurich Theatre Spectacle that we're part of at the moment. They are reviewing and responding to a number of works and recording them those responses as videos and it's up on the festival website. We did one of our community filmmaking projects, The Democratic Set, back in 2011 and a couple of our members were featured in it and we watched that together a number of a couple of them are going to come and see our show but we spent two hours with them yesterday and it was just such a privilege and a joy to be with a new group of people we didn't all speak the same language but we you know introduced ourselves did some some workshop games and icebreakers and toured their facilities and Mm -hmm. wouldn't it be good to have that we should advocate for that or we should build this or but Suffice to say, we'd all done our rat testing that day as part of our normal day-to-day protocols. But they also said, anyone who wants to wear a mask, of course, feel free. But also because we're workshopping and and we may not want to wear masks, and not everyone can wear masks. They did their. We came across all their, um, you know, twenty rat tests as well, and we're like, A plus. This is this is the reality that we're in. We're we're all trying to look after each other and respect each other by. You know, as soon as you feel symptoms, you don't come to work or um, you still check, even if everyone's feeling good, just to go, right, let's just do surveillance testing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And, like, I can also imagine just like, you know, we're talking obviously a lot about COVID-related Changes in that stuff, but even as you said, like different cu- countries have different laws, different kind of standings in that space, which yeah. also happens outside of like we were talking about visas before and how US visas were so much more difficult than UK. It's very interesting. I can only imagine in Europe when you literally travel on a train to another country and then all the different laws and all the different like requirements would be entirely different. Um, have you have you felt like that was like an Seriously. adjustment? <laughs>
1: I, I think there's definitely a, a readjustment. I mean, the company is very experienced with touring, certainly much more than I was before I joined the company. I've, I've made work overseas and and toured and, and met networked quite a lot, but I haven't done heaps of, you know, touring, in better commas. Mm-hmm. I think we're a bit rusty. We we certainly, like everybody, coming back into this bit of whiplash, whether it's putting on shows again, whether it's being on tour again, whether it's being in the creative development room again, being around people in social settings. We're we're readjusting and recalibrating to what we feel we can and can't do. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we're back, we're in the groove now, which is good, but there was, yeah, like um, I know that there was, we had, as, as an example, some just visa with Switzerland, it was a question of, well, we need to get work permits, but do we need to get visas? And then the the law had changed somewhat recently that visas probably work visas weren't required, but the, the work permit was. The work permit is got by the festival, but the visas would be got by us. And there was this back and forward, back and forward, which was quite stressful because we're spending we're doing three venues in Switzerland. We just wanted to make sure that we were all above board, really. Yeah. And and we no one wants to be stopped as you're coming in saying, No, you can't the three weeks of touring teed up that you can't come into the country. I mean, I would always go, I'm sure there's a way through this. We've made a mistake here. Can't we quickly yeah. pivot the, uh, to to do something and fix it? But look, that's still a very um, blue, um, sometimes optimistic <laughs> point of view. Yeah.
0: Sometimes it's very useful and helpful because sometimes things that you think are outright Knows or cancellations aren't but mm, mm. sometimes that optimism is also not fruitful and no, <laughs> then you um, tackle right. it all but yeah you you talked a lot about funding and kind of fundraising in the past is that like so mm. is that how you fund a lot of your projects like at the moment i know you, you talked around the multi-tiered funding that back-to-back gets and the wonderful nobel prize of theater that they're about to receive um mm. But it, is that the main way that you fund projects that you've worked on is through grants or is it literally like that philanthropy focus that you were kind of mentioning before?
1: It's it's diverse income streams like it is for most uh, arts organisation. If you are seen to be just surviving on government grants, that is a really risky, tenuous and arguably non-sustainable way to, to work. So a Back to Back, we... Yeah, we do have a, a good sort of percentage of government funding, which with COVID it increased a bit because of things like JobKeeper and um, other stimulus packages from the state government, for instance. But usually our government subsidy is around 40, 35 to 40% at back-to-back and then we have to find other funding to support the, the organisation and it's through fees that we receive when we tour. It is philanthropic grants, it is private donations, all of that, and, and you know, support from the NDIS, to which is you could say is government funding, and it is, but it's actually about enabling. It's different to arts funding, to pure arts funding, and that's where back to back does have, you know, there's it. It creates greater complexity. Um, absolutely. But we are able to draw on multiple government funding sources like the NDIS. Plus, then we can go to the Australia Council through, you know, the federal government through the Australia Council. That's where we get out.
0: Yeah, it can be one of those really. I guess useful ways of trying to get other different sources of funding in that kind of sense. Like, I've definitely worked mm. on projects where we've been eligible for NDIS funding through like mm. artist participation. But yeah, it can sometimes be that harsh moment in some of those larger organizations where because you get a grant for one specific support, you don't, you can't access other streams of funding as well. And that can be like a double edged sword and all those kind of elements. But yeah. It's a, it's a time but multi-tier as you said is probably like diverse funding is one of the more stable ways moving forward like obviously yeah. there was those big cuts like a, about a year or two ago which some organizations <laughs> didn't survive that because they were in no. a place where they existed solely on like funding bodies and hmm. when the river dries up it drives up i'm using a lot of water metaphors these this episode but right. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm here for it, it it's it's I'm from Brisbane. We live like beaches everywhere, uh, which sometimes I'm not really a beach person, but I do every so often get the real craving for a Brisbane beach. And I only say that because I know everyone will be like, Melbourne has beaches, go to the Melbourne beach. But Brisbane beaches are different. I won't say better because I don't want the hate, but I will say they are different. Yeah, with we're so... With that in mind, like, so does back-to-back as well, Like, uh, do you have a team that helps support you in those yeah. funding applications now and instead of like being the sole flag bearer of the fundraising, I guess? No, absolutely, funds.
1: absolutely. So this is what – I mean, back-to-back has built up the, a team to support you know writing grants, both government grants, philanthropic mm-hmm. grants. Um, we have someone who works explicitly on private giving and donations, and that's around right. sort of a giving circle – high net worth individuals who are giving larger portions of money right down to people who give an annual donation of 50 bucks you know it's all of it's important all of it is is critical to how we work so i mean that's where a company like ours is very privileged to to have that level of support and be able to staff it in that way i mean i still think at times we don't have as much capacity as we would like to fulfill the opportunities and ambitions of the company so it's always about finding the the right equilibrium for that then there's also um a lot of uh, i mean i've worked in much smaller companies where there's the equivalent full-time of two and a half people like at chambermaid where i was writing the grants for government i was doing the philanthropic and i was the sort of one-man band or getting support from the team but ultimately responsible for getting that money and whether it's project money or core funding. it, all of it's critical and important. And then, you know, have garnering the presenter fees from being in festivals or um, working with venues, that kind of thing, it's it's all critical. But I think, I mean, Back to Back has now this this more very solid base because we've joined the National Performing Arts Partnerships Framework and there's eight new entrants to that group. So, and, you know, groups such as Griffin, Artback NT, Windmill, Bidjury... Dance North and Terrapin. I think I've got all of them. Mudder Gecko is the other one. And there are a bunch of small to medium companies that are just increasing intersectional representation across our sector, but it's going to give us sort of more solid bedrock funding, but also assurance that we have at least eight years funding. That is, at times, I know, kind of maybe hard to hear because other companies are still, you know, every four years or every... Whatever the cycle um, is, having to go for their multi-year funding, whether it's local government, state, or federal. And I would just say we also do our lot trying to advocate for those in this other small parts of the small to medium sector. Those in the independent sector with project funds. Like our company would would not exist without the huge community, like inner sanctum, but also wider community of artists mm-hmm. that we work with, who are collaborators, creatives. They take workshops. And that's across thirty years. Like it, 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 we, when we think about, and when we had cause to reflect on this recently, winning this big award, it's like there are just so many artists that, that who are independent artists, often freelancers who mm-hmm. don't work with any fixed company that go between all these different majors, large companies, small companies, the opera, all the way down to you know self-funded projects or you know very small funding like um, from Osco or, or um, creative victoria that just fund that one project um from where to go we wouldn't exist without that community we have to so they have to be supported and they have to be respected in terms of i just think of things like cpi increases for small companies because often that's been frozen um, in funding cuts or economy um you know uh, economy dividends or um, that kind of economic rationalisation, it's kind of like, but ultimately you are progressively defunding uh, or reducing funding of companies. So we need to set, in setting the whole sector up for success, we need to be having better support structures in there, in funding. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Just being aware of time, I might move move on to the next sure. question because I'm sure we could go, talk go, go. around funding no, no. for the rest of the whole podcast series. This is a question I just like to throw in for producers and pro- self-producing artists as well is like mm-hmm. why do you think producers are essential to the art sector? Or are they essential to the art sector?
1: I think um I think the the practice of producing is absolutely essential to the art sector. All parts of it, particularly the performing art sector I'd say you just you need it and even if you don't have a producer in name, you, I would wager you're doing your own self-producing. So whether you're working as a production manager, stage manager, author, creative director on a, a small to medium or a small co-op project, you're doing a huge amount of self-producing. So I think that's where producers do have a role and I think it's about ensuring that role is not siloed or too fixed in people's minds because it's about stepping in where it's needed for projects or running organisations because that's what producers can do and they can really help empower artists, empower collaborators at all levels to, to do their best work.
0: Look, I honestly have nothing to add really. That kind of sounds like a great encapsulation and advocacy for our roles. Something that we kind of do this, this is the last – we're getting into, like, the more personal now. We're going from mm-hmm. larger arts sector at large conversations down into, like, uh, more specifically you. Mm-hmm. When it comes to producing, is there a moment that you are the most proudest of? Like, what is, like, a big achievement that you could think of?
1: No, when you sent through some questions, I was like, oh, how am I going to answer these questions? But I did think about this one, and I, uh, one came into my mind. There's two examples. One was a work I did at Chambermaid called Between 8 and 9 and it was a cross-cultural project between Chambermaid in Melbourne, Victoria and a bunch of artists and institutions in Chengdu and Sichuan in China and that came out of a very personal interest of mine to work more and collaborate in China because I studied Chinese and Chinese history and felt like I have very strong feelings that us as a sector should be engaging with our region as opposed to always only looking to you know europe or north america as as the places for our work to exist and to collaborate with it's a very kind of old school colonial idea i think and i I like the idea of well i'm passionate about the idea of collaborating in our region and um it was this, this, this project happened over multiple years. It got quite a lot of funding across all different levels of government through Asia Topa. It was an Asia Topa project at the Melbourne Recital Centre. And I was effectively one of the lead artists and creative producer on that role, uh, on that project. And I worked with uh, lead artists Madeline Flynn and Tim Humphrey and a, an incredible merry band of, of other artists and, um, who performed who dreamt, who uh, were production collaborators and helped us, you know, realise quite a weird, wacky new piece of work. And I remember distinctly sitting in the salon at the recital centre with um, the work is sort of inspired by tea houses in a way, because Chandu is really well known for them. And so every audience came in. There are, I think, eight tables or nine tables, cause you know, between eight and nine. Mm-hmm. And everyone sat down. There were Lazy Susans or like a, a design representation of Lazy Susans. Everyone received a cup of tea. And there's this p- the piece in the middle that is being sung by members of the company, including Carolyn Connors, and the lights are down it's just and I just remember still sends shivers up my spine remembering it going okay this has been part of my friend fucking hard as a project really really hard it's pushed everyone to their limits at times and not been straightforward not been easy but in terms of developing people to people relationships to de- developing practices to showing audiences something completely different And it was a divisive work. Not everyone loved it, but some people still say, I loved that work. It just did something completely unexpected. I felt so proud of that moment as a producer, as the creative producer of the work. Because, yeah, yeah, I I realised that it needed me. I was a critical part of that team. It it couldn't have happened without me pushing. And, yeah, it was just a really fantastic project.
0: It's the weird duality of those really difficult projects sometimes where there are those intricacies mm. and steps through because one it is hard um, or as you said, fucking hard, um, which <laughs> I've had my a plenty of those myself. but it is one of those moments where once it gets achieved, you, you know that you were vital. In that role to make that thing happen, which is a really good feeling. Because, like, often um, what's come up in a couple of these other conversations is it's really hard to feel that accomplishment sometimes in the arts, like to have that verified, especially if you are in that more creative producing or producer or like those kind of not as front facing roles. Yeah. But also another yeah, list was- of people that I also love working with in many different ways. They're very lovely, yeah. uh amazing humans as well.
1: Incredible, great humans.
0: On the flip side, one of the other things mm. that Laura and I wanted to ask, this doesn't have to be like a big incriminating mistake or like big things on the world, but what is one of the mistakes that you feel like you made on your producer journey? So many. <laughs> many. I know, I have so a many. massive list, a massive
1: list. I think sometimes The mistakes that you only make once or twice where you don't put something in a budget when you're dreaming up a budget for a project and submitting it for funding and you get there and you're like, shit, we haven't put nearly as much in for access as we thought or I didn't put any money and we should have put money in for childcare um, and supporting people with caring responsibilities. You know, just errors in spreadsheets, you know, where you've gone, holy shit, I didn't really go right over that and just check for sense, like there's a problem with that formula. And I didn't yeah. see it. And sometimes you can't see it because it's behind like a funding body's own template. And that's like, uh, I think the the other thing is just contingency. Often that's something in a budget that you need to and I know we put a lot of contingency in at the moment because there's so much uncertainty. But I often think that does buy you insurance and it it's then tempering Well, some people might say, Well, the project's very expensive and it's like, Okay, but there is some contingency in there. Let's try and not have to use that but uh, I need to put it there because this is about you know.
0: Yeah. I I have so many rainy days where I've had to dip into my contingency funds when I've been able mm-hmm. to get them and put them aside, mm-hmm. which have helped mm-hmm. life. The mm-hmm. other lesson I learnt, um, especially when you're doing government funding and reporting, when to use contingency. Because sometimes mm. I've also gotten to the end of the project and realized I've had a chunk of money that I did not spend, um, which I then suddenly have to magically figure out how to spend in
1: yeah.
0: three days. Yeah. Um, but but yeah. no, I think that's that's good kind of standpoint. So with, with that in mind, because like, this sometimes also feeds very well into kind of our closing segment of basically, if you could go back and give yourself one piece of advice, what advice would you give Tim?
1: I would, the advice would be never be too far away from the work because I think that's at times I see and have experienced myself getting so much in my own head and stressing about so many things that are, you know, good things to stress about or like fair enough things to stress about. But you often then forget the reasons you're doing it. So when you go and see the work and you have that opening night experience or you go into rehearsal and you go, oh, that's why I'm doing it. I'm thinking about this all wrong or I'm fixating on this actually that I actually what I need to fixate is on are the artists going to be in a good accommodation that's the thing I haven't thought of at all um because that is sometimes the mistake you'll make it's like I've booked a shit piece of accommodation and that's going to come back to bite me because I thought it was economical and cheap and that it actually it's yes. going kind to of cause me a total nightmare when I'm there I think the other thing that I the advice would be yeah so don't sweat try not to sweat the small stuff too much and get close to the work at every opportunity always see the work regularly Mm -hmm. and i think the other piece of advice is play the long game because everyone's trajectory is going to be different you don't it's just not worth comparing yourself against other people's and where they're at in their career but that also the more fundamental thing is you don't know where your colleagues friends people that you started off your journey together where you'll all end up so, you know, one of your colleagues and closest friends could be the chair of the Australia Council in 20 years' time and probably will be. One of your friends will, you know, need you in a way that you didn't expect because you thought they were going to be a really famous Hollywood actor, but actually they have a nervous breakdown and they have to completely change careers and they're going to need you to support them and say, that's okay. It's alright to say, to walk away from this, even though you love it and you'll always love it and you can still have it in your life, but you need to walk away. or I think it's just you just never know where people are going to end up, and that's about power and influence. Yeah, I think it's about just knowing and treating everyone with respect in a way as well.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's great advice. I think that's a long-time lesson that I had to learn was the comparing to others, specifically because I also – was also a bit more like my trajectory, I think, because I had quite a steep trajectory into the arts where I was like – I'm in the arts. Oh, now I'm working at a major um, arts marketing networking space, and now suddenly I know all these people that I don't, you know, normally would have taken me years to network or connect with and Mm. all these elements. But then I suddenly felt like I was not going anywhere because I was staying in the same level for a year or two, which was ridiculous because that's what you do in a job. You stay (laughs) and then you Mm. move on. But I just kind of kept on comparing myself to these, like, even not even a real person, but these ideas of what I thought was where I was meant to be by now and what I was meant to be doing and taking on and tackling. And it really was not a good time. So, I think that's a great advice to give. And just to kind of see where things go. Sometimes setbacks open up spaces that you never knew were possible because, you know, you wouldn't, you never look in that direction or you never talk to that friend or Mm. sidestep and find those projects in very interesting ways.
1: Yeah. And you say often, quite often, always do, learn so much more out of that painful failure professionally, hopefully not too many personal, but, you know, personal as well. Um, Yeah. Is that that's, it is, everything's learning, everything will build your resilience and character. And, um, yeah, it just... You may think that you've been shut out at the moment and sometimes you are and you need to fight for your voice in that, but also you'll find your voice and also others will help you find it and, and platform yeah. you as well. So, if you do it with respect and empathy.
0: No, I on. think that's a really, go on, go on, go on, that's, I you always cringe a little bit when of that kind of like, you know, always find the bright side of every situation, but I think my version of that is the. What what can you learn from that situation? What can you take away from it? Every situation is useful in some way, shape, or form, but it you know sometimes it can feel a bit weird to be like I'm really happy I didn't get this grant because bright side, (laughs) but going oh I learnt these three things about grant writing, I learnt these, like I need yeah. to have this stuff prepared.
1: Other piece of advice I have is with grants, always get, it, get always get feedback, even with the grants that you get that are successful, yep. always. Say, so is there anything like that you would recommend that I we improve or why didn't it get it? It needs to be competitive. Yep. If it's not, why not?
0: Exactly. I'm also very pro on like calling up the funding body and mm-hmm. talking to them before you're doing the application and like talking the thing through because sometimes you might – have misread or mis- gotten the wrong end of the stick of what they are after, yeah. and then suddenly you're like, my project is this, and they go, oh, that wouldn't be applicable because of these three reasons. And then I'm like, great, I saved myself 40 hours of <laughs> putting together a great application. <laughs> read the guidelines. Some some coordinator has painstakingly put those guidelines together for you. Yeah. Read them. As someone who has done that and is still doing that to this day, uh, read the guidelines. <laughs> And that kind of brings us towards the end of our session, Tim. So, just for our listeners, I'll talk to Tim and get, like, any links that Tim would like to share if you want to, like, find out more about Back to Back or any of those spaces. But thank you so much for your time and for this wonderful conversation.
1: Thank you, Patrick. Thanks,
0: everyone. All right. Uh, thanks, listeners. And I will catch you next time on Producers in Conversation. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. Milky is your go-to for getting your show to the stage. We run industry-leading courses and workshops for independent artists and producers, covering everything you want to know about producing a show. Want to find out more? Head to our website, milky.com.au. That's M-I-L-K-E
1: dot com dot au.